listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is Tuesday, the 30th of August, 2022 in Seoul, and I'm joined here via Zoom by Dr. Song Yun Lee, who is somewhere in the east of the United States, sometime yesterday evening, Eastern Standard Time. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you all, please, to leave a review about this podcast episode wherever you can. Spotify allows ratings, but not reviews. Apple Podcasts allows both. And you can also like and subscribe us on YouTube. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. It's much cheaper than you think. And that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every single day. Thirdly, follow me on Twitter at JackoZ and nknews at nknews.org. For podcast suggestions and feedback, you can tweet at us or email us at podcast at nknews.org. All right, my guest today, Dr. Song Yun Lee, is the Kim Gu Korea Foundation Professor in Korean Studies and Assistant Professor at Tufts University's Fletcher School. You can find him on Twitter at S-U-N-G-Y-O-O-N-L-E-E, and the number one will put that link in the show notes so you can find it more easily. Welcome on the show, Dr. Lee. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We've, we've been talking about having you on for a while. I'm glad to finally have you. I hope it's not the last time. Thank exactly. You. Let's, let's hope not. Uh, now, Dr. Lee, from reading your op-ed pieces and uh, seeing you interviewed in the media and looking at your Twitter feed, one might be forgiven for thinking that you are a hardliner on North Korea, almost hawkish. Is that a fair categorization? I'm entirely progressive and optimistic. I wish for North Korea to change in a positive way to open up and to reform. So I'm really far left when you think about it. And often I regret that I am indeed misunderstood. Ah, okay. So could you, uh, what's the word, fill out your position a little bit more? How do you see uh, North Korea? Well, North Korea, I often say, is uniquely unique. Now, one might say every individual, every nation state is unique. So what's the big deal? But mm. really, as many of us, we know, North Korea is really different. It is, as you know, and everyone at NK News knows, it is the only country in the post-1945 era that has implemented a communist hereditary succession twice now. It is North Korea, the DPRK, Democratic People's Republic of Korea, is the only country in the world that has uh, endured, suffered, and extended famine for an industrialized, literate, peacetime economy. Let me try to be more pithy. North Korea is the only industrialized, literate, urbanized economy or society to have undergone a famine during de facto peacetime. We've never seen this in history. One might say North Korea is also the most militarized society with a standing army of um, over 1.1 million men for a country of a population of about 25 million. That's you know hyperinflated also in terms of its military budget, which admit admittedly in absolute terms is small, but again, for a country uh, that has a small GDP, North Korea spends anywhere between 22-25% or more per year of its national budget on defense, and no other country comes close to that. When it comes to the most extreme and pervasive form of the cult of personality of the great leaders, so-called, I mean, the degree of outrageous just 
perverse exaggeration and deification of the leaders is unparalleled, I would say. And many scholars on the left and right also agree that the DPRK has effected, built the most perfected, the most totalitarian system in world history. And I would say, therefore, North Korea is a composite of many weird things and the sum total of all these unique characteristics make the DPRK perhaps, arguably, the most powerful political player proportionate to its economic status, which is small, its population, which is also quite small, and its territorial size, again, not huge. So North Korea has been to use a cliche, punching above its weight class, above its weight for decades. And North Korea has been calling the shots when engaging or allowing itself to be engaged with far bigger powers, including China, the United States, Russia, South Korea, and Japan, and many others. So North Korea is no ordinary country. And our tendency to patronize North Korea, to down grade or underestimate North Korea's designs and strategy. For example, President Donald Trump, out of hubris, perhaps out of self-confidence, confidence, certainly out of complete ignorance of North Korean history and strategy, thought that he could size up the North Korean leader in two minutes and perhaps reach some kind of understanding, uh, charm the weird-looking North Korean leader, exchanged love letters, and uh, made progress. That kind of tendency to underestimate North Korea and to patronize North Korea, that is an attitudinal problem that has been pervasive in our engagement with North Korea. And by us, we, I mean everyone, including mm. the United States. Do you see North Korea as a legitimate nation state? Well, it is a de facto nation state, of course. Now, as you know, the two Korean states have been engaging in sort of this fictitious uh, charade, mm. um, each claiming to be the sole, the only legitimate state yeah. and not you know, refusing to recognize the other as a legitimate state. So there's that aspect, that dynamic, that very important life and death dynamic of this decades-old contest for pan-Korean legitimacy. Yeah. In this contest, I think you'll agree, our listeners will agree, most of our listeners, that South Korea has emerged at least since the early 1970s as the richer, the more prosperous, the more legitimate, the more, well, legitimate and happier Korean state. And of course, this has implications for the DPRK dynasty, dynasty because the great leader, so-called, does not want to remain, does not want to be relegated to that gloomy condition state of forever being the leader of the loser Korean state. And I when the want to interrupt with a follow-up question. How can one state be more legitimate than another? Well, when you have a nation state whole and with a great sense of a shared past, divided as the Korean Peninsula was in mm. 1945, they're basically people of the same ethnic stock with a high degree of ethnic homogeneity and certainly with a sense of a shared past and a common future, this ethnic nationalism that's so strong in both North Korea and South Korea, uh, you have a problem 
when each claims to be the only Korean state, and when North Korea, as we know, uh, as a so-called rogue state in violation of many international treaties, conventions, and laws and norms, uh, is causing problems and threatening nuclear strike, as the Kim siblings, both yeah. Jong-un and Yeo-jung, have been doing uh, this year in 2020, that makes South Korea the more conventional or happier or more legitimate state, the more law-abiding state. And for North Korea, the reason that North Korea acts in this way, resorting to provocations and make threatening, making nuclear threats and so on, is not because the leadership is crazy in a conventional sense, but, I don't know, like an athlete before signing the next big contract, you have to perform, you have to enhance, enhance your value. Mm -hmm. How does Kim Jong-un, how, how, does, how does the DPRK do that? By conforming to international norms and being a good player? I don't think so. By being, becoming a bigger and bigger thorn problem for the region and across the Pacific Ocean for the United States. That's how North Korea gets respect. Is the government of North Korea a legitimate government? Well, in so much as it, it is a de facto nation state with diplomatic um, relations with over 160 nations, mm. one has to argue that, yes, it is a de facto legitimate state. Now, South, the South Korean government will never do that. Yeah. But, you know, as an observer of Korean affairs, yes, I would say North Korea is a member of the international community, although yeah. a very problematic one. Mm. When we, uh, when the international community engages with or deals with the government of North Korea, should it be uh, principled or, or flexible? Do you see that? Is there a, a dichotomy between those two options? Can you be principled and flexible at the same time? How, how should we approach North Korea? Well, the United States does not recognize North Korea, of course. That is, you know, there is no formal diplomatic relationship between the two nations. And uh, that the, the reasons are various. But, of course, the two sides fought a very bitter war, one that North Korea started. And the nature of the regime has not really changed insofar as that it is very repressive, um, that it is committing crimes against humanity, that it has built nuclear weapons, despite having joined the NPT uh, in 1985 and, of course, having withdrawn from it. Uh, the fact that North Korea is a model state sponsor of terrorism, the fact that North Korea is the only country in the world that, with a straight face, commits various crimes like counterfeiting U.S. currency, producing and proliferating illicit drugs. No other country in the post-1945 era does this on a state-sponsored scale, level, and such a big scale. So North Korea is a problem child, as many countries view North Korea. But when it comes to diplomacy, international politics and diplomatic relations, uh, we know that most of the European Union states have normalized relations with North Korea. We know that, again, over 160 nations have normalized relations with North Korea. Mm -hmm. North Korea is a member of the United Nations. So with a country like that, one has to be principled, but also one has to be willing to talk to North Korea. Mm. Were you opposed to the summits of 2018 and 2019, that is between the leaders of North Korea and South Korea, and also the President of the United States and the leader of North Korea? 
I was indeed very much against those talks, inter-Korean talks, the US-North Korea talks, and so on, because, you know, when Kim Jong-un on January 1st, 2018, in his annual New Year speech, floated the idea of being amenable mm -hmm. to sending a North Korean delegation to South Korea for the opening ceremony of the Pyeongchang Winter Olympic Games. Yes. This was entirely predictable. I had seen this movie before more than once. In fact, by then, by 2018, it was more like Rambo 4. Now, Rambo, the first movie, First Blood, was a good movie. But, you know, by the fourth time, one has a pretty good sense of how this movie ends. And what I'm referring to is North Korea again does escalate, does cause problems, does resort occasionally to even small scale, limited, lethal attacks against South Korea. But it's not crazy. It doesn't go out of control. It knows when to de-escalate. And each time that Kim Jong-il or even the original great leader, Kim Il-sung in 1972, when the North Korean leader allowed himself to be engaged by his neighbors, uh, which we saw with Kim Jong-il um, hosting a summit meeting with the South Korean leader in 2000 and also seven years later with Roh Mi-hyun in 2007, the world has expectations that are unrealistic and the North Korean leader is able to play his interlocutors very uh, artfully, very um, deftly. And Kim Jong-un did exactly what his father had done. When Kim Jong-il proceeded to the throne in the wake of his father's death in July 1994, now for, for the first six years, Kim Jong-il never traveled outside his country, never hosted a meeting with a foreign leader. Uh, he would lob a missile over Japan, as he did in 1998, engage South Korea in lethal naval skirmishes, as he did in 1999, 2002, and so on acting weird, but six years later, all of a sudden, Kim Jong-il popped up in Beijing. This is May 2000. Mm. Why? Because he had a very important meeting with the South Korean president, President Kim Dae-jung, in June, the first ever inter-Korean summit, which yeah. was quite sensational, I have to say. And then he hosted the next month, in July 2000, a man named Vladimir Putin. The first ever visit to North Korea by the top leader of Russia or the Soviet Union. And then he turned to softening up the United States. He sent for the first time in North Korean history mm. a special envoy to the Bill Clinton White House. And Marshall Cho met with President Clinton on October 10th which of course is party founding day in North Korea, and extended an invitation to President Clinton. Mm -hmm. Just days later, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright was in Pyongyang meeting yeah. with Kim Jong-il to gauge the feasibility. And Clinton really wanted to go, but the trip was never, it never transpired because of the Florida vote recount right. in the wake of the November 7th presidential election contested between um, George W. Bush and Al Gore. And then Kim Jong-il, that was a setback, but he showed up again uh, in China in January, imitating Deng Xiaoping's southern tour, visiting the special economic zone, you know, mm -hmm. the, the states in, in the south, uh, including Shanghai. So that's, that's the precedent for the son, Kim Jong-un. What did Kim Jong-un do after inheriting power for the six, first six years, just like his dad, never traveled outside his country, never met held a summit, and then six years later, he pops up in Beijing 
in late March 2018. Mm -hmm. This is after having sent his sister Kim Il-jung to South Korea. Kim Il-jung, you know, charmed a lot of South Koreans and people beyond just by showing up and just mm. smiling and shaking hands and not even giving one official statement to the press. And then what happened? Kim Jong-un and President Moon, South Korean President Moon Jae-in, held their first summit meeting at the border village in Panmunjom. And that was viewed, um, that was, uh, cons that was viewed as a breathless breakthrough by many people. To me, it was the same show, uh, Kim Jong-un, you know, engaging in a dramatic image makeover and President Moon eager to paint Kim Jong-un to President Trump and to the world as a reasonable statesman with whom they can do business. So I was a bit cynical because, you know, I've been repeatedly mugged by the duo team of history and uh, reality. And at the time, I was very critical of mm -hmm. how quickly the United States changed its tune and now wanted to beautify, wanted to defend even the North Korean dictator. Well, um, then, yeah, let's look for a moment at the United States. Throughout its history, the United States has had talks and engagements with some odious governments and regimes. And I'm not just talking about regimes that America supported, like uh, Saddam Hussein in the early days or Augusto Pinochet in Chile. I'm talking about regimes that America was actively opposed to, like the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China, who it also fought against here in the Korean War. And then recently, President Biden talked to and bumped fists with Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. So really, I wonder what makes in your mind a fundamental difference between the system and people in Pyongyang and other systems that the American government has had to grit its teeth and engage with over the years? Yeah, so... All the examples you mentioned, I am not opposed to such meetings. And in principle, I am not opposed to summit meetings with the North Korean leader, whether it's the South Korean leader meeting the North Korean or the United States, the American president or the Japanese prime minister and so forth. But when it comes to this issue of, quote, denuclearization of the Korean peninsula, end quote, that is not denuclearization of North Korea, but of the Korean Peninsula. This is a game that the other side cannot win because this is a formulation, this strange formulation, the phrase denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula is a formulation that Kim Il-sung came up with in the 1980s and then vigorously promoted in the early 1990s. And that phrase, it's mentioned, quite prominently in the North Korea-South Korea denuclearization accord of 1992. The phrase is featured in the 1994 Geneva Accord, the agreed framework of October 1994 between North Korea and the U.S. It's mentioned in the September 19, 2005 joint statement of the six-party talks, mm -hmm. and it is mentioned in every single U.N. Security Council resolution opting to punish or sanction North Korea. So it's okay, But let's give a little bit of context to our listeners there. Let's not forget that in the 1980s, when Kim Il-sung came up with this phrase, denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, there were only nuclear weapons present in South Korea. There were not any nuclear weapons present in North Korea at that time. Uh, now we are, of course, in a completely opposite situation. 
Indeed, that's that's a very important point. But of course, at the time, throughout the 80s and going back to the 1970s, even the 1960s, North Korea was very keen on and trying very hard to build the bomb. So South Korea got rid of or the North, the United States withdrew U.S. nukes from South Korea by late 1991. Mm. And over the past three decades, even longer, we've been talking about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, when mm. the only Korean state that has been nuking up is North Korea, not South Korea. So over the past 30 years of negotiations with North Korea, I don't know, perhaps it was a, a rookie mistake in the, in the uh, early 1990s. The U.S. and South Korea made various concessions, not only agreeing to give North Korea energy and food aid, which is, you know, under the right circumstances, fine, but also to suspend combined annual defensive military drills, team spirit, so-called. So that was a precedent set by the U.S. and South Korea, and it was sort of a goodwill gesture in engaging North Korea and pushing North Korea to get rid of its nascent nuclear arsenal. But I think it was an unfortunate precedent. Now, precedents aren't, they don't, they're not prescriptive necessarily. They don't define the future, but they are kind of constraining. So Kim Jong-un has some reasons to be uh, displeased by the resumption of the combined military exercises that should never have been suspended live field training as they have been over the past almost five years. Okay, but just help us to understand here what exactly, so given that historical context that when Kim Il-sung said, let's denuclearize the whole Korean Peninsula, and there were only nukes at that time in South Korea. Now, of course, there are nukes only in North Korea. We're still using the same phrase. What exactly is wrong with that phrase? Surely, uh, if we look at it at a literal surface meaning, denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula would mean now we have to get rid of the nukes that are in North Korea. Why is that a bad thing? Because Kim Jong-un has now, uh, and his father before him, trapped the other side into accepting North Korean nukes as legitimate. Now, North Korea, you know, uses that phrase, of course, never says denuclearization of the DPRK, but says, of course, of the Korean Peninsula. Mm -hmm. Yet North Korea occasionally very kindly explains to the world what that phrase means exactly to the DPRK. It doesn't mean unilateral denuclearization. In fact, it means something entirely different, almost quite opposite. It means mutual disarmament, meaning the withdrawal of U.S. troops from South Korea, but not only from South Korea, but from the region, also from the region, which means, of course, Japan and Guam, and ultimately the abrogation of the U.S.-South Korea military treaty. North Korea explained this quite clearly uh, in the KCNA, in the KCNA article of December 20th, I think, 2018. And, you know, at various meetings with Americans, DPRK officials say this all the time. Okay, the two sides are saying completely different things. What's the matter with that? What's, what's, to, uh, what's disagreeable? Well, North Korea can say that you have agreed to our position of mutual disarmament over the past 30 years. It's in various agreements in the six-party talks, bilateral agreements. It's in the UN Security Council resolution. So. I know that the U.S. and South Korea don't want to push North Korea and change 
uh, the expression and say denuclearization of the DPRK. But in a way, the two sides being perhaps too clever have given North Korea a legitimate argument in continuing to use this formulation. Even today, North Korea has some logical grounds to argue you've agreed to this. And by mm -hmm. this, we've told you all along mutual disarmament. Do you think that denuclearization of the DPRK can ever be practically achieved? And if so, under what conditions? Probably not, un unless the DPRK collapses, which I don't see any signs of that. Mm. Although, you know, in history, states both big like empires and small like North Korea uh, do come and go. So it's not an impossible proposition, but highly unlikely, as far as I can tell. Uh, is it possible through conventional and very artful diplomacy to uh, press North Korea to give up its nuclear arsenal? I'm very skeptical that can be achieved. Do you believe that everything the North Korean government does when it communicates or engages with the United States and or South Korea is a priori in bad faith? Well, North Korea lies for a living, I would say. Uh, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. You know, the whole legitimacy of the Kim dynasty is based on the heroic exploits, supposedly, by the founder, by Kim Il-sung. Who is Kim Il-sung? Well, as we know, he was born in April, April 15th, 1912, in a village called Mangyongde near Pyongyang. His father was a middle school teacher, early member of an anti-Japanese Christian nationalist group, uh, the Joseon Kungminhwe, Korean National Association. Mother was a deaconess in the church. Kim Il-sung played the church organ when he was young. And in 1919, the family emigrated, as many Koreans did at the time, to Manchuria, to northeastern China. Uh, he was only seven at the time. Kim Il-sung attended the Chinese school, um, middle school, and at age 19, he joined the Chinese Communist Youth League. Um, next year became in 1932, he became the leader of a small band of Korean partisans within a Chinese communist guerrilla army in Manchuria. And then from 1941 to 1945, he was a captain, he was an officer, junior officer in the Soviet army, um, the 200-man 88th Special Regiment of the Soviet 25th Far Eastern Forces, which was a multinational you know, Russian, Chinese, Korean reconnaissance unit out of the Russian Far East. So he was a small time guerrilla with, you know, real revolutionary, revolutionary credentials. But in North Korean history, Kim Il-sung single-handedly liberated Korea. There is no mention of the U.S. fighting against Japan. There is no mention of other South Korean heroic patriots, independence uh, fighters. So this is the whole false legitimacy. And in this narrative, there are many falsehoods like Kim Jong-il, you know, being born atop Mount Pektu in February 1942, when, as we know, he was born actually in the Russian Far East the previous year. Why? Because his mother and father were there. And this narrative has, you know, taken on historic proportions that this heroic, almost omnipotent, omniscient powers have been handed down to the son, Kim Jong-il, and to the grandson, Kim Jong-un. So this cult of personality and the founding legitimacy of the dynasty is based on various falsehoods. 
And when North Korea engages its interlocutors, you know, every nation state engages in di differing, varying degrees of strategic deception. No nation comes just completely clean and says, OK, this is what we want. This is what we're going to do. But North Korea has taken this art of strategic deception to an entirely uh, another level. Kim Il-sung, you know what he did on the eve of in, um, launching a massive invasion across the border on South Korea? in the early morning of June 25th, 1950, repeatedly in the same month, on June 7th, June 19th even, six days before launching the invasion, he proposed meetings between the two parliaments, between the North and South, for what purpose? To found, to establish an inter-Korean parliament when? August 15th, on the occasion of the fifth anniversary of liberation, it was a very detailed plan, and he kept proposing it to South Korea. Well, did he change his mind at the 11th hour? Obviously not. So North Koreans have been known to be less than completely ingenuous. They, they lie. To, it, it's seen, lying and deceiving the enemy is viewed as a patriotic, perhaps even a heroic tactic. They have no qualms about uh, telling the world. Well, I mean, they do say that. They have no human rights problems when arguably North Korea is uh, the world's most uh, serious violator of human rights, a model uh, purveyor of crimes against humanity. And for many years, North Korea argued that they did not have any nuclear weapons or nuclear weapons program until they uh, dramatically announced in February 2005 that they are a nuclear state. So yes, I would say North Korea is not always honest. If that's the case, what are the options, the different options that are available to us in terms of dealing with the North Korean state? And how do you rank them in terms of attractiveness or reasonableness? Well, in my field, we use uh, many cliches. Um, Sorry, just jargons. remind us which field that is? International relations. International. Okay, IR. And there are lots of different, um, what do we call it, streams of thought in IR. Which one is yours? Well, to use um, a jargon. I see North Korea as a revisionist state. What does that mean? A state that is fundamentally displeased with, unhappy with its international environment and is willing to even use force to change that international environment in its favor, uh, as opposed to a status quo state, one that is quite happy with where it is, the environment it finds itself. So when we talk about revisionist states, of course, Hitler's Germany, Imperial Japan, and other examples come to mind. Um, some might say North Korea is not a revisionist state. It is a, a paranoid, poor player that just wants to defend itself. I don't buy that view because North Korea, it's been North Korea that's launched thousands of attacks against South Korea and against U.S. personnel in South Korea over the past seven decades. And there has been no serious military retaliation against North Korea by the U.S. or South Korea out of fear of escalation and another war in the Korean Peninsula, which obviously the South Korean government and the South Korean people and Americans don't want. So North Korea has been able to get away with murder, um, with killing hundreds of Americans and thousands of South Koreans over the past several decades. So that's the kind of state that North Korea is. And 
does it do this because it's perverse, because it's fun, it likes to kill, it's sadistic? I don't think so. It does this, it resorts to such provocations because it is fundamentally unhappy to be, again, the inferior Korean state when you have many North Koreans, now some 34,000, who have hopped over the fence, who have taken the great risk of escaping their oppressive nation to do what? To resettle in the other Korean state, the happier one, the more prosperous one. Well, then Kim Jong-un has a problem. You know, if your people want to choose to live in another state, neighboring state, which consists of the same ethnic stock of Korean people for various reasons, you have a problem. So the only way to overturn this seemingly perpetual forever state of inferiority, this gloomy reality, is not in the North Korean thinking to catch up with South Korea, which is conservatively 50 times richer than the North, but to perhaps effect the Vietnam model. What is the Vietnam model that the Trump administration uh, was touting? Something very different from from what Kim Jong-un has in mind. It doesn't mean gradual reform and remain a single party communist dictatorship. It means do what Hanoi was able to achieve, become an overwhelming political burden to Washington, effect, sign a peace treaty with the United States and compel the United States to withdraw troops and to abandon the South and then dominate the more risk averse Southern neighbor. That's the Vietnam model that the three generations of North Koreans have entertained. Are we anywhere close to that kind of risk taken by the North Korean leader? I don't think so. But at the same time, this has been the post-Korean War years since the armistice of 1953. It's been a shaky peace in the Korean peninsula, but a de facto peace. That is, as imperfect and problematic as the status quo has remained over the past 70 years or so, there has been no war in or around the Korean peninsula. Whereas if you look at the period, the 60 year or so period leading up to the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950, I count five pretty serious wars, beginning mm -hmm. with the first Sino-Japanese War of 1894 to 1895, which was fought in and around the Korean Peninsula. Ten years later, the first Russo-Japanese War, uh, and then the second Sino-Japanese War. By then, of course, Korea was Japan's colony, a platform for moving uh, Japanese troops and materiel into Manchuria. And then it was short, but very brutal, the second Russo-Japanese War in August 1945. And of course, the Pacific War, the U.S.-Japan mm -hmm. War, which was not fought around Korea, but there was actually a plan for the invasion of Korea by Americans with Korean independence fighters under the command of Kim Koo. Mm. Um, there was an agreement was even reached between the head of the American OSS, Office of Strategic Services, General Bill Donovan and Kim Koo signed an agreement in early August in Sichuan. And then that plan was never effected because Japan, as we know, surrendered in the wake of the two atomic bombings that same month. So my point is that the Korean Peninsula, by virtue of its location, has been a point of clash, contention, rivalry by various bigger powers historically. And the last seven decades of long 
peace, de facto peace. Again, very imperfect and shaky, but no war. This has been a period of unprecedented growth, prosperity, uh, human rights, civil liberties, political freedom for the people in the South, whereas for the people in the North, uh, it's been a period of perpetual undernourishment, oppression, uh, surveillance, um, pub public killings, executions, and so on. Now, does that mean that we should be pleased just to maintain the status quo? Well, if you are the Korean government or Korean people, South Korean people, I think one should ask for more as, you know, cause we know that Koreans are so big on ethnic nationalism, by the Koreans ourselves, mm. uh, this notion of ethnic uh, identity. But the status quo then, uh, less prefer preferable to changing it by maybe war of unification by South Korea. I don't think there's a single person in South Korea who wants that, who wants to invade North Korea at the great cost of, I don't know, millions. Would you, uh, would you advocate uh, attempts to topple the North Korean system from without or encouraging the North Korean people to do it from within? As you know, this is very hard to effect. Yeah, and reform and gradual opening and the North Korean people gradually uh, demanding uh, something better in terms of relaxation of all these restrictions, you know, the um, oppression on the, of the people in terms of basic freedoms, the deprivation of the most basic human freedoms like freedom of movement, freedom to choose where to live, where to send your kids to school, where which profession to take up, uh, what kind of periodicals or uh, magazines or newspapers or books you want to read and so on. And the basic freedom, the right to live, the right to food, and related aspects of the right to life, uh, all these basic freedoms, freedoms of religion, information, speech, and so on, have been more severely oppressed under the Kim dynasty than even during the very brutal Japanese occupation of 1910 to 1945. So the status quo is not completely acceptable to South Korea, but uh, I would say, Anything that risks war in engaging the North is also to be avoided. Mm. You argued elsewhere that you'd like to see the people of North Korea engaged without the government being engaged. I'm just wondering how it is. Is there a way that it's possible to help the human rights situation of the people in North Korea, for example, by feeding them without engaging the government at the same time? Well, North Korea is, as far as I know, the only aid recipient nation that blatantly violates international norms, the universal code of conduct, as an aid recipient nation to allow basic monitoring, you know, uh, transparency, make sure that the aid givers have access to orphanages and hospitals and so on, where the aid is uh, intended. So North Korea doesn't abide by these norms, and it's a problem. And as we know, during the very serious famine of the 90s, many world-class legitimate aid organizations and NGOs closed shop and left because what North Korea was doing was simply unacceptable. We, you know, Doctors Without Borders, uh, Oxfam, and several others. So it's really hard to provide food, medical aid to North Korea 
without the regime taking and diverting uh, most of it. Now, there is, of course, some trickle down on positive effects. Some of it will end up where it's needed the most uh, for pregnant mothers, for children who are starving, for the elderly and the infirmed. But to allow North Korea to dictate the terms of aid uh, is also not to be accepted, I think. I think aid-giving nations and organizations have considerable moral and material leverage to demand more of North Korea and not just give in to North Korea's outrageous terms. The um, North Korea scholar down in Busan, Brian Myers, argues that it's not possible for the, uh, I'm, I'm going to do a, a bad paraphrase of what he's saying, but basically that the North Korean government cannot maintain its system through fear and repression alone, and that therefore a large proportion of the North Korean population, perhaps even a majority, uh, support the government led by Kim Jong-un and his friends and family. Would you agree with that? Well, as far as we can tell, there has been no uprising, no demonstration, public protest worthy of the name, the term in North Korea. And this is due to various factors, of course, the fact that North Korea is so adept in terrorizing its own people and monitoring uh, its people. So I would say, yes, tacitly, the people do support mm. the regime. And I'm sure there are many who are unhappy, but simply don't feel inclined to oppose the regime because, of course, uh, then the, the repercussions, the implications are quite obvious. So insofar as uh, the majority of the people are resigned to living with the Kim regime, mm. yes, I would say the people do support the regime. And does that have implications on how we should approach North Korea or, or engage with, with North Korea? Well, when you look at soft authoritarian states relative to the DPRK, like South Korea under military dictators in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, uh, especially in the 80s under Chun Doo-hwan, uh, Chun has blood on his hands and forever his legacy will be marred by the Gwangju massacre mm. of May uh, 1980. But during those years, if, if we use the Brian Myers dictum, the vast majority of South Koreans were content to grow rich. And it was the human rights activists, the students, who changed this dynamic, who took the great risk of opposing the dictatorship and effected gradual reform and opening uh, starting in 1987, 1988, and compelling Chun Doo-hwan to step down. So, you know, even in a country, and of course, South Korea then was far different from North Korea today, but even in a country where the majority of the population is resigned to accept basic, uh, you know, accept the dictatorship, to accept deprivation of some rights, like freedom of speech and so on, freedom of the press, mm -hmm. even in a society like that, if a few minority, a small minority of activists, brave people are able to speak on behalf of the nation as a whole and demand more of the government, then in some cases, progress is possible. Is that possible in North Korea today in 2022? I don't think so. We know that Kim Jong-un has, in fact, tightened control on the consumption of foreign media, passing a law I think in December mm. uh, 2020, 
um, criminalizing the consumption of South Korean media up to 15 years for repeat offenders and then even public execution for uh, distributors of South Korean media. And what does that imply? Well, the regime is fearful of the people uh, consuming more of foreign media, including South Korean media, and learning more about uh, the world and how relative to the outside world, how deprived, how repressed they are. So that is point of vulnerability for the DPRK that I think on both principle and practical consideration should be exploited. So what the Moon administration did in passing this uh, law, uh, the GAD law, as a senior British parliamentarian called it, um, dictated to the South Korean government by Kim Yo-jong in a written statement on June 4th, um, 2020, and criminalizing sending not only leaflets, not only anti-DPRK leaflets, but basically everything under the sun that has any exchange value, including a bar of soap, you know, pair of socks, banning, sending everything, anything across the border into North Korea was, in my view, a great mistake, a setback for democracy in South Korea, and an offense to the people, the long-suffering people of North Korea who are thirsty for information, and a poor precedent under which successor governments must abide. So I'm all for sending more information into North Korea, even though it may cause inconvenience to the border residents and to others. Uh, it is a universal right, of course, the freedom of speech, freedom of information, the right to consume and share information, irrespective of, regardless of borders and regardless of medium. That is the prescient phrase enshrined in Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So you, you just mentioned uh, President Moon and his, uh, his anti-leafling law. How, how, how do you evaluate President Moon overall, just in in view of his uh, relations, his attempts to engage North Korea. You know, there are voices here in the South that see him as a, or saw him uh, as a, uh, a crypto communist ready to hand over the keys to Seoul to Kim Jong-un uh, whenever he wanted it. What do you think? Well, when Kim Dae-jung reached out to the North Korean leader then, uh, Kim Jong-il, in 2000, I would say it was a worthy attempt, although we later found out that there was money under the table uh, in the sum of some $500 million mm. um, in, in the days leading up to President Kim's visit to Pyongyang, which was regrettable. But by 2018, I think President Moon should have known, based on the past, based on precedents by Kim Dae-jung and Roh Moo-hyun, who also met with Kim Jong-il in October 2007, that summit meetings alone do not lead to positive change, to genuine reconciliation and genuine peace and North Korea's denuclearization. So I think probably Moon Jae-in, like most politicians, overreached out of hubris, out of self-interest, and tried to paint the North Korean leader as an agreeable, legitimate, trustworthy person. And I think that was a mistake. Mm. Now, nowadays, I'm surprised to hear more voices in both the United States and in South Korea arguing that Seoul should have its own nuclear weapons or it might be okay for Seoul to have its, its own nuclear weapons. What do you think about that? How do you feel? 
Well, when North Korea conducted its third nuclear test on February 12, 2013, and it was the first underseen by uh, Kim Jong-un himself in the Kim Jong-un era, um, you know, snap polls after such a nuclear test in South Korea yielded results, let's say 66%, two-thirds mm. of the South Korean people, close to 70%, probably reacting in a somewhat emotional way, saying that South Korea should build a bomb for itself as well. Mm -hmm. Now, some 10 years later, almost 10 years later, I think that kind of sea change that is South Koreans feeling more and more that South Korea needs to nuke up itself for various reasons. One is that can South Korea really trust the United States to risk mm. you know, hundreds of thousands of American lives to defend South Korea in a limited nuclear war against North Korea? I think we're moving in that direction. And that, of course, has negative implications for the non-proliferation regime, mm. um, South Korea might perhaps face the ignoble um, distinction of becoming the second state to have acceded to the NPT, non-proliferation treaty, and then after North Korea to mm. uh, to withdraw from it. I don't think it's we're anywhere close to it. And the UN administration has come out and said, no, there are no plans to go nuclear, which should be the right stance for now. But I think we're inching in that direction mm. because again we're living in a different world in 2022 and yeah. i don't i'm not referring to the pandemic i'm referring to uh, both vladimir putin and kim jong-un and his sister sort of normalizing the notion of a limited preemptive nuclear attack on its enemy or on its neighbor so uh, we move we're moving in that direction and you know that is quite alarming so more and more south koreans will come to think that nuking up makes sense on the other hand on the other side of the uh, the pacific ocean um north korea as we know has lots of nuclear warheads now it, it claims to have missiles that could successfully carry those warheads to the continental united states though there's still some doubt about how reliable that system is now if and when North Korea gets to the stage where it can be shown to definitely have a reliable delivery device that can hit several American mainland cities, even beyond California, do you believe that the United States will continue to uh, maintain its commitment to the, the ROC-US alliance and continue to use its extended deterrence to keep North Korea in check? Or will voices in Washington uh, become louder to make a different calculus now that it might one day be forced to trade Seattle for Seoul or Boston for Busan? Well, you know, to use another cliche, it's all scenario dependent. I think if cordial relations can be maintained with a DPRK that is nuked up to, to the teeth and obviously capable of marrying a nuclear warhead on an ICBM that mm. can hit Washington, D.C., under that scenario, as we've lived with China, the United States has li lived with China for decades, mm. uh, I think there could be calm and perhaps even occasionally product productive dialogue between the two parties. But Kim Jong-un, I think, is not content to merely achieve that kind of credible deterrence and live as, again, continue to live as the leader of uh, the loser Korean state. I think he wants to change the equation. And the way to do that is, again, to cause trouble, to gradually escalate, go up the ladder of escalation and become an imminent nuclear threat 
to certainly the U.S. forces in Korea and also in Japan and to South Korea, but also by and by become a more credible threat to the West Coast or even the East Coast of the United States. And how does he achieve that? Well, by causing problems, lethal problems, limited attacks against South Korea, firing a missile in the direction of Guam, perhaps hitting a military installation in Guam or Hawaii, doing something that might be cause for war and thereby give doubt to whoever is in the White House. Do I risk the lives of tens of thousands of Americans mm. just to honor my our treaty uh, commitment to defend a key ally across the Pacific? Or do I say, okay, let's have peace and withdraw from South Korea? We're not anywhere close to that kind of deliberation yet, but I think that's the direction in which Kim Jong-un wants to go. Is there, in your mind, any realistic way in which the two Koreas can ever live in mutual and peaceful coexistence on the same peninsula? Well, if Kim Jong-un were all of a sudden to become a reformer, a real reformer like Deng Xiaoping, the mere fact that he lived in Switzerland, uh, the way that Deng Xiaoping lived as an older person in his 20s in Paris, in, mm. in France, and was exposed to European cosmopolitanism, um, engendered optimism in some uh, North Korea watchers, as we know. But for every Deng Xiaoping, there's a Pol Pot, there's a Basha al-Assad, who was a doctor, studied yeah. medicine in uh, England, and Pol Pot, of course, also studied yeah. in France. Um, so if Kim Jong-un were to change, um, and I certainly hope that he does, then yes, um, a softer authoritarian leadership under the Kim dynasty in Pyongyang, one that is secure and non-threatening and uh, not willing to dominate, censor, bully, emasculate, and perhaps even take over the South, then I think the two Korean states could live in, under better conditions, um, warmer relations. But again, the nature of the DPRK, the false, fictitious narratives and the legitimacy of the North Korean leadership that is founded on fictionalized history and brutal oppression of its own people do not lend themselves to an amicable, peaceful relationship with its neighbor, South Korea, and even beyond Japan. Okay, last question. Uh, Dr. Lee, you have a, a book coming out. Uh, these days, Kim Yo-jong has, has been back in the news again. She's uh, given some public speeches. She's sounding very strident towards South Korea. She uh, made a statement about hating President Yoon. Uh, so you've got this book coming out. The title is The Sister. It's all about Kim Yo-jong. And in a recent interview you gave to the Korea Times, I even saw the cover of the book, and yet it won't be published until almost a year from now, June 15th next year. Why is that? It's a bit complicated, but apparently there are uh, different markets in the world for English language books. My oh. publisher is based in London in the UK, mm -hmm. um, and the three big markets are North America, the US and Canada, uh, and Europe, and um, Australia, New Zealand, and other uh, countries where, like the Philippines, English is spoken, Singapore, and so on. Uh, so my publisher wants to coordinate and uh, simultaneously release the book in all all the all the English language markets. Mm. So uh, that that's going to take a bit of coordination and um, planning. Um, but uh, I I you know trust my publisher to think that's uh, in everyone's best interest. 
I, I imagine that that you as author must be somewhat anxious that you think uh, you know Kim Yo Jong's hot. She's in the news now. You want to get the story on the sh the book on the shelves as quick as possible. That's right. But also, you know, as we've seen uh, in recent weeks, Kim Yo-jong has been quite prominent and mm. her role in government as the most strident co-crime boss, even, you know, less restrained than her brother. You know, this is a weird dynamic that mm. Kim Yo-jong is playing the role of the so-called worst cop to her brother's bad cop. Right. Uh, it's it's quite clever. It's ironical. And I expect Kim Yo-jong to take on a greater prominence uh, in our nation's statecraft, shall we say, in the coming weeks and months. So, you know, it gives me a chance to update mm. uh, and to, um, yeah, to, um, to keep up, keep track of uh, current events. Oh, that's good if you can, if you can still update it. Yeah. Uh, let me once more bring up uh, Brian Meyer's name and say that if you want to get your next book out faster, you can always self-publish like he did with his Juche Myth book a few years ago. Yes, yes. And he's a great writer. <laughs> Indeed. We hope you'll come back on the show uh, next year to uh, when your book does come out to talk in more detail about that and about Kim Yo-jong. I would appreciate that very much. Thank you. Well, thank you once again for coming on the show today, Dr. Song Yun Lee. Listeners, don't forget, you can find him on Twitter at S-U-N-G-Y-O-O-N-L-E-E -E and the number one, Song Yun Lee one. Uh, are there other Song Yun Lees out there? Apparently there was, so ah. I had to go with Song Yun Lee One. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. All right, well, thanks once again, and we look forward to talking to you in the future. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services that specifically cater to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access and a free trial membership by sending an email to membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast, and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks, and listen again next time. <laughs>